This morning's scripture readings are from Joshua, the 24th chapter, verse 32, Genesis, the 50th chapter, verses 24 and 25, and Exodus, the 13th chapter, and the 19th verse. I'll be reading the New Living Translation. Joshua 24, 32. The bones of Joseph, which the Israelites had brought along with them when they left Egypt, were buried at Shechem. And the plot of land Jacob had, brought from, had bought from the sons of Hamer for 100 pieces of silver. This land was located in the territory allotted to the descendants of Joseph. Genesis 50, 24, and 25. Soon I will die, Joseph told his brothers, but God will surely come to help you and lead you out of this land of Egypt. He will bring you back to the land he solemnly promised to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath, and he said, When God comes to help you and lead you back, you must take my bones with you. And from Exodus, the 13th chapter, verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear to do this. He said, God will certainly come to help you. When he does, you must take my bones with you from this place. This is the word of the Lord. Before I introduce our speaker, I see Amy Causey down there, and I can't remember if I saw the hands back there, but it made me think of our young people who are in South Africa. Continue to keep them in your minds and in your hearts. They're having a fantastic experience so far ministering with Living Hope uh, in Cape Town. I'm delighted and honored to introduce uh, Gerald Hutchinson, who's going to be with us this morning as our special speaker for this Sunday. In March of 2014, Jerry Hutchinson became the endorser for chaplains and pastoral counselors with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Jerry was a chaplain in the U.S. Navy Reserve for 26 years, retiring at the rank of captain. He served 17 of his 26 years with U.S. Marines, and Jerry was a Fleet Marine Force qualified officer. He was recalled to active duty twice. First time was in 2004 to serve as a chaplain with three U.S. Marine Corps helicopter squadrons in Bagram, Afghanistan. The second deployment in 2012 was, with, was in Djibouti, where he served as Director of Religious Affairs for the Combined Joint Task Force Horn of Africa. In his civilian ministry, Jerry served churches in both Georgia and Virginia. He and his wife, Vicki, served as home missionaries with the New River Baptist Association in Jacksonville, North Carolina. Jerry served also uh, at the Home Mission Board, now the North American Mission Board, in the role of director of the Church and Community Ministries Department. He's a graduate of Mar Mars Hill University, a wonderful Baptist school in uh, uh, western North Carolina degree in religion from there. Also graduated from Southern Baptist Seminary, and I did not realize this, but Jerry was in my father's last Christian ethics class, which I'm honored by that, and I did not know this, but my father spoke at Jerry's ordination service. And even more than that, I thought I received all of my father's books, which are my prized possessions, but apparently he gave you a set of commentaries that I was unaware of, which <laughs> I want them back. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, it's funny. Jerry said right when we were leaving uh, my office, he said, you know, I, I know he had a lot of friends and everything. And I said, he never had anybody get commentaries from him other than me. So obviously you were special to Henley Barnett. 
Jerry and his wife, Vicki, reside in Stone Mountain, Georgia. They are the parents of three adult children and grandparents to five delightful grandchildren. They are members at our sister church, a marvelous church, uh, pastored by a Samford grad named Chris George, Smoke Rise Baptist Church in Atlanta. Please welcome with me Jerry Hutchinson. Well, what a privilege it is to be here with you today on this Freedom Sunday. Um, Since becoming the endorser, I haven't had many invitations uh, to preach. I guess hospitals and and prisons and uh, that sort of thing don't often call guest speakers, but I consider it an honor to be here with you today. I bring you greetings from Susie Painter, our executive coordinator of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship and your 1,800-plus sister churches, and there are many individual members of CBF as well. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that we have 765 actively serving chaplains uh, under endorsement from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. They serve in hospitals. They serve with hospice organizations. Some of them are clinical pastoral educators teaching uh, clinical pastoral skills to chaplains. We have chaplains in each branch of the military, in the Veterans Affairs Administration, chaplains that serve in correctional facilities both at the state and federal level. We have chaplains in continuing care communities for older adults. We also have chaplains who serve in business and industrial settings, chaplains that serve with colleges and universities. We have pastoral counselors who are endorsed by the CBF, chaplains that work in emergency services, uh, police, fire, rescue. We even have chaplains with the Civil Air Patrol. And just in the last couple of months, we had um, chaplains, CBF chaplains, who were selected to be in the inaugural class of chaplains for the Secret Service. So I, I represent them, and we thank you for your support of them. The cemetery at New Melray Abbey in Dubuque, Iowa, has only about a hundred crosses, although a plaque says that there are more than 250 monks interred there. A visitor to the cemetery spied the plaque and looked at the crosses and asked the abbot who was leading the tour, where are the missing monks? Missing, he replied. No, all of our monks are here. No one is missing. It would not do, he explained, to have the cemetery growing endlessly. So when a monk dies, we open up the oldest grave and we gather the bones that remain and put them in a cardboard box and position the box beneath the head of the monk who is to be buried. So the dead monk becomes his brother's pillow, the visitor asked. Pillow, the the abbot uh, repeats while reaching for his French-English dictionary. Pillow, ah yes, oreiller, pillow, that's right, he said, grinning. He becomes the pillow. When I die, my brother, who never knew me, will become my pillow, and eventually we will both die and be the pillow for a monk that neither of us ever knew. Bones being used as pillows 
is a striking image. But in Joshua chapter 24, verse 32, which we just read, there is another reference to bones. The Israelites brought along with them, when they left Egypt, the bones of Joseph and buried them at Shechem in the parcel of ground that had been bought by the sons, from the sons of Hamor for a hundred pieces of silver. It's interesting that the Israelites brought the bones of Joseph with them when they left Egypt. Now, in the ancient Near East, burials were usually completed quickly after death, sometimes even on the same day of the deceased's passing. This was due in part to the hot, dry climate, and also because the body was considered ceremonially unclean and therefore had to be prepared for burial as soon as possible. In Genesis chapter 50, we see the setting where Joseph says to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land that he promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath, and he said, when God comes to lead us, Back to Canaan, you must take my bones with you. I think this was an expression of Joseph's faith that one day God would bring God's people out of the land of Egypt into a promised land. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, that great roll call of faith, tells us as much in verse 22 when it says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions for his burial. As a testimony to Israel, Joseph asked that his bones be taken up with them when Israel left Egypt. And then we fast forward to the time of the exodus in Exodus 13, 19, and we see as the Jews were preparing to leave Egypt that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, thus fulfilling the promise made earlier by the sons of Israel. Have you ever stopped to ponder how many years Joseph's grave and then Joseph's bones were tended to between his death in Egypt and his burial in Shechem? An estimate would put it at around 700 years later. Now that's a long time to care for someone's bones. No doubt because of the special status that Joseph held with the Israelites, his remains were treated with the utmost reverence and honor. Not unlike the respect that we pay to the tomb of the unknown soldier in Arlington, National Cemetery. The Tomb of the Unknowns is guarded 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year by Tomb Guard Sentinels. It has been guarded every minute of every day since 1937, regardless of the weather. These Sentinels are soldiers who volunteer for this special duty and then are selected 
from among the best of the best of the 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment known as the Old Guard. Now, I can't help but wonder if a military escort was assigned to guard and transport Joseph's bones as they left Egypt and headed for the Promised Land. The scriptures don't tell us. We don't know if this task was assigned to an individual or to a particular tribe. But surely there was a schedule, a duty roster, if you will, of who would be responsible for guarding and transporting Joseph's remains each day. In our military, serving as a sentinel at the Tomb of the Unknowns is a coveted assignment. But how did the young warriors of Israel react when they learned that they had bone duty? Would they view it as an honor or as a routine perhaps boring assignment. No doubt they would have preferred to carry the battle standard, and yet both duties, assignments, were necessary. Now, I'm sure you know that church ministry affords one a goodly share of bone duty. Those routine, sometimes tedious tasks, which are important, but not necessarily visible or inspiring. A few years back, I was serving on the staff of an inner-city church in Atlanta, and I had been away for 17 days on military duty, and I was eager to get back to church that Sunday morning and to see my church family, and so I told my wife I was going to drive on ahead and get there a little bit early so I could begin to greet people as they came in. Well, oftentimes, homeless people would sleep on our porticos, in the doorways to the church. And when I got there that morning, I saw that someone had gotten ill and lost their supper. It was uh, quite a sight. And unfortunately, our church did not employ the custodial staff on Sundays. Uh, No one else was there but me. So not exactly the kind of welcome that I had anticipated. But I went and got uh, a bucket and a mop, and I got a dustpan and a broom and I cleaned it up to make sure that when folks came and were coming into the church building that everything would be uh, clean and welcoming. That was bone duty if there ever was one. But I think on a more serene note here at Brookwood, I have to tell you that I love your theme for 2018, above and beyond. Twice the hands and twice the hearts. I know that you all have served uh, hikers on the Appalachian Trail in Damascus, Virginia this year, and that you've done construction work in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, that a group has gone to do medical missions in Managua. And yet I wonder, did any of you engage in bone duty as some of you wrote prayer and inspiration cards for those going on the mission trip? or spent time in prayer in the above and beyond prayer room, which I noticed down the hallway, or counted pills to be used in the medical mission, or maintained and repaired the tools for the builders for Christ, or baked treats to be put in Ziploc bags for those going on the mission trip. I suspect some bone duty was done by those who remain here and provided child care to someone who went away 
or gathered their mail or mowed their grass while they were away on mission. One of Mother Teresa's oft-quoted observations was that not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. I think this is what the Apostle Paul was stressing when he wrote to the church at Colossae and said, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Bone duty is not so bad when we're doing it for the Lord and for the growth of God's kingdom. In the military, bone duty can take many forms. Scraping and painting the hull of a ship, food preparation in the chow hall, standing watch, especially a night watch, being tethered these days to a cell phone as the person on duty to answer questions or attend to emergencies, cleaning your workspace, cleaning your living space. Uh, In the Marine Corps, we call that field day. We're going to have a field day. As we think about the military, it's worth noting that we are in the longest war the United States has ever been engaged in, now going on almost 17 years. 2.7 million service members have been to the war zones of Iraq and Afghanistan since 2001. This includes active duty personnel, but it also includes reservists like myself and National Guard troops who were recalled to active duty. And over half of these have deployed more than once. Many times that number of Americans have borne the costs of war. As spouses, parents, children, friends coped with their loved one's absence and mourn the deaths of some of them or greeted the changed person who returns home from deployment. Someone has said that our country is like a bank. If we want to take something out, then we must first put something back in. Our contribution may be bone duty, or it may require our very lives. I would also point out that Today's military members are all volunteers. Never before in our nation um, have we been engaged in a war for so long when so small a number of its population carried the burden. Even though more than three million men and women have joined the military since September the 11th, 2001, This comprises less than 2% of our population. And yet they left the comforts of home and being with loved ones to serve a cause greater than themselves, fully aware of the inherent risks of their choices. Many of these service members have exhibited uncommon courage General Martin Dempsey tells the story of Master Sergeant Roger Sparks of the Alaska Air National Guard when he and his helicopter crew rescued a dozen soldiers 
off the side of a mountain in the Hindu Kush region of Afghanistan. Under heavy enemy fire, Master Sergeant Sparks was lowered by a cable from his helicopter 12 times to retrieve pinned down soldiers one by one. Twice the cable was hit by gunfire. Eight soldiers survived and four died in his arms. General Dempsey asked him, what were you thinking when you lowered yourself time and time again? Sparks answered, truthfully, I didn't have time to think. I just knew they needed my help. You see, there's an incredible bond which occurs between military members, especially when you deploy to a combat zone. I think it comes from the shared experiences that we have together, beginning with the training and the preparations to deploy and all the long hours that you put in to get ready. Then the trip over there, the traveling together, the meals that you share together, the housing that you live in, which can range from dorm rooms to tents to plywood huts to earthen spaces carved out on the side of a mountain. The bonds grow through the things that you do together, the missions that you go on, the work that you do. And certainly the ties are strengthened during the downtime that you share together, when you try to entertain yourself through watching movies or playing video games or playing cards, reading or exercise. It's not unlike the bonds you develop with classmates in college Except here, life and death are too often part of the equation. A deployment creates a sense of shared sacrifice. The fact that we left our loved ones and we leave the comforts and conveniences of home to go and serve our country. While separated from our loved ones, we miss those important family milestones, birthdays, holidays, anniversaries, and the special joys of first ball games, recitals, or graduation. These shared sacrifices unite us, and the time we spend together day in and day out knit us together in a unique way. And there's certainly the shared commitment. We each join the Army or the Navy or the Air Force or the Coast Guard by choice. And we take pride in what we do. And there's a certain esprit de corps in each service branch and a friendly rivalry among us about that. I remember the professionalism I observed from a female Marine door gunner who operated a 50 caliber machine gun on a Huey helicopter in Afghanistan. When she was getting ready for a mission, she was focused and she was all business because she knew that lives depended on it. And she exemplified great pride in her work. It was something to behold of a teen. Service members willingly give their lives to protect or to rescue or to care for one another. And here's a beautiful example of the bonds of care and concern that military members share 
from a recent story on the CBS Evening News. Reminder of the sacrifices military families make. It is the story of Daddy's little girl. While stationed overseas, U.S. Army Specialist Chris Harris received the best news from his wife, Britt, a special handmade onesie that said, Chris, you're going to be a dad. One week later, the father-to-be was killed when a suicide bomber attacked his convoy. Since he wouldn't be with his daughter in person for the many milestones in her life, Chris's wife turned to what her late husband considered his extended family, his Army brothers. My boy Harris, you know we're going to do it for him. We're going to see what kind of baby he's going to have. She sent to Afghanistan confetti for the family to take part in the gender reveal. Three, two, one. It was a girl. Chris Harris's family seemed as excited as any parent would be. Named after her dad, Christian Michelle Harris was born in March, the same day Chris's brothers returned from their tour of duty. And the brothers saw for themselves when they were included in a photo shoot with the baby. In one stunning image, they form a circle with their palms in the center, Christian looking up. They cradle her just as their brother would. In this picture, Christian wears another onesie. My daddy, my hero. Just about the best onesie ever. That is the CBS Evening News tonight. I'm Jeff Glor. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a good night. Even death cannot break the bonds of caring for your battle buddies. In fact, I think it strengthens them. Today's military members reflect us. We come from small towns and large cities, from every corner of this country. Some are graduates of Ivy League schools or state universities, many from the service academies. Some are trained at community colleges and others from private liberal arts schools. In fact, many people join the military in part to earn the Montgomery GI Bill uh, or to use tuition assistance so that they can advance their education. Today's military is comprised of men and women. We range in age from our teens to our 60s, and we span the political spectrum. But we weren't born in uniform. We are simply Americans responding to the call of our country. Your administrative assistant, Mary Jane, was gracious in compiling and sending me the names of some of your members who serve or have served in the military. Billy Bishop in the Air Force, Lawrence Corley in the Army, Fred Delosier in the Coast Guard, Richard Estes in the Navy, Bob Faircloth, the U.S. Marines, Joyce Fields, the Army, Jim Giffen, the Air Force, Joe Halbrooks, the Army, Tom McKinnon, the Navy, Ray Pierce, the Marines, Johnny Walker, the Army, Bill Wadd, the Army, Jim Scott, the Army, Bill Dean, the Army, Max Austin, the Air Force, Patrick Ryan, the Air Force, Bill Floyd, the Army, Jim Esobi, the Army, and John Williams in the Navy. Please forgive me if I've overlooked anyone or butchered your name in calling it out. But these are your own who have chosen to put something back in. As George Washington noted, 
of a different era's veterans. When we assumed the soldier, we did not lay aside the citizen. I suspect most of our service members would tell you that when they leave the military, they are better citizens than when they joined. We have a larger worldview because we have traveled and interacted with people not only from across this country, but from around the world. We pay more attention to national and world affairs. I don't know about you, but it breaks my heart the way our country is so divided these days. We can't even agree on what is true or what is fact or what is fake. Even worse, there seems to be a contempt for those with whom we disagree. Jim's father, my seminary ethics professor, Dr. Henley Barnett, used to quote Sir Roger de Coverley, an English country gentleman who noted, there is much to be said on either side of any question. If indeed there is much to be said, I think it behooves us to listen to one another. It just may be that your insights can compensate for my blind spots. And likewise, my perspective may inform your thinking. If only we will seek each other out and listen to and dialogue respectfully with one another. Another epigram from Jim's dad was that truth comes through the friction of friendly minds. So that friction will create light and not just heat, we must practice civility in our conversations with our fellow citizens, especially in our social media. Stephen Carter writes that civility is a sacrifice we make for the good of our common life. And Aristotle pointed out that tact is the art of making a point without making an enemy. One of the things military members experience and I think take away from our time in service is that which is printed on our coins. E pluribus unum. Out of many, one. I mentioned earlier the diversity of people and places and educational backgrounds and cultural experiences that form us and shape us in the military. I think a biblical parallel is found in Paul's letter to the church at Galatia in chapter 3, verse 27 and 28. As many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. And there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ. Dr. Jerusha Neal of Duke Divinity School, an American Baptist, states that this oneness that Paul alludes to does not erase or eliminate our differences. Being one does not mean being the same. This oneness allows for diversity and unity to coexist. But we all know that living into this oneness isn't easy. 
There are all kinds of unanswered questions. I mean, how do we form disciples without some conformity? How do we create safe spaces for people and allow for different perspectives than our own? Dr. Neal stresses that our Baptist values can serve us well in this regard. Bible freedom, soul competency or freedom of conscience, church freedom, and religious freedom. To embrace these values and live into them requires our nurturing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I've never forgotten the definition that Jim's father gave his students for love. Dr. Barnett used to say that love is very ambiguous in the English language. We love our mamas. We love hot dogs. We love Auburn. We love Alabama. We love Sanford. In fact, the only place in the English language where love is totally unambiguous is in tennis, where love means nothing. He would say, he would offer us this definition of love. Love is to will and to work for the well-being of another. To will and to work for the well-being of another. I think Paul encouraged this when he said to look out not only for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. In our dialogue, we must learn to attack problems without attacking one another as we discuss the issues of the day. Remembering what the Proverbs writer said, that a soft answer turns away wrath while a harsh word stirs up anger. We must find ways to cooperate as much as possible with each other looking for common ground. In fact, one of my Sunday school class members often says we need to look for higher ground. John Meacham, in his book, The Soul of America, writes that the perfect should not be the enemy of the good and that compromise is the oxygen of democracy. Nobody gets everything they want, but we find something that we all can live with. Sometimes the most powerful An impactful work we do is done close to the ground where progress occurs incrementally. In a time of great conflict in our nation in 1861, newly elected President Abraham Lincoln closed his first inaugural address with these words, We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained it, it must not break our bonds of affection. These mystic cords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land. This will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. We all need to be mindful of focusing on the better angels of our nature. Brothers and sisters of Brookwood Baptist, I think you're on to it. As you engage in community ministries right here in Birmingham and in Virginia and Wisconsin 
and as you do missions in Nicaragua, and even to the ends of the world, in Brazil and South Africa and Mongolia, continue to reach above and beyond. And don't be put off by bone duty. I would close with Paul's words in Ephesians 3. You're very familiar with them by now. Now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than what we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen.